ora. Welcome to another New Zealand uh, Initiative podcast. He's Oliver Hartwich. Uh, you're still Josie Pagani. You're still my favourite nifty. You're still my favourite Ricey. In fact, my ears, I was just thinking as we were starting this, my ears are buzzing because I went to Groove Amada last night, which was an incredibly cool concert. Um, and just totally, you looked around and you thought this is totally a COVID super spreader event. I don't care. Um, still lucky you last night I wrote my latest column. You wrote your latest column, but, but oh, I was going to write on Europe next week as well. Anyway, about, never mind our economists, but that made me think about China at the moment that they uh, that protests are rising in China actually against some of the fires, but against. Are you saying this is a super spread? Well, no, I'm, not, I'm saying I'm probably about Stevie COVID. I probably not, but um, it's interesting that the COVID zero COVID policy in China is starting to really hit back. I think against government and they. They're um, screening the FIFA World Cup and they've had to stop screening images of the crowds because the crowds aren't wearing masks. And so people in China are going, hold on a minute, is the rest of the world not wearing masks? I, I would suspect they have a great filter where all the spectators in the crowd are automatically digitally modified to wear a mask for Chinese television. Yeah, they're probably all men, like in those rows in the, in the, in the National Congress. Anyway, gosh, uh, lots to talk in about. In our version of the World Cup, of course, China will win it. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Against everybody. Yes. Um, particularly Taiwan. Um, with a lot to talk about this week, but I think we should start with this extraordinary discovery that there is a clause uh, basically set using Section uh, 268 to entrench any uh, attempt to change the free waters legislation if this of the EU government. This is extraordinary. Do, do you want to explain why this is such a constitutional uh, um, error? Yeah, I found out about this on Saturday morning on Twitter, actually. I, I saw it by uh, Dean Knight, an associate professor here at Vic, constitutional lawyer. And when I read this, I almost fell over backwards. Because um, basically what it says is there are some bits in the free waters legislation that the government now wants to a future government not to touch. And so that future governments can't mess around with these provisions, they have written into the law a clause that would require a future House of Representatives to have a 60% majority to modify or repeal these sections. And I thought this is just absolutely outrageous from a constitutional law perspective. And so did Dr. T. Knight, of course, when he tweeted this. And I thought, where's the outrage? Where's the outrage on Saturday? And I was really... Um, quite concerned about this, that this is something so outrageous and it would just kind of disappear on Twitter. But then over the weekend, it brewed into an almighty storm on Twitter and by Monday morning, the Herald actually led with the story. So basically what this government is trying to do is it says, okay, we might be out of office next year, but we will still rule you from our graves because you might elect a new government and it doesn't matter because we've set the rules and they can't change a thing. And that is just fundamentally democratically outrageous. Look, so it, this is not about the substance of free waters at all. This is actually a constitutional uh, um, crisis here because in New Zealand we, we don't have a written uh, constitution. We have a very, we, our constitution is scattered through lots of legislation, right? So we have this balance of flexibility, which we like. We don't want to pin any government down, right or left, with stability, um, which is which is represented in the entrenched yes. um, bits of the law, right? Which are really only to do with how we vote, uh, 
who votes you know, if it's in the Electoral Law Act, you know, the standard. So if you move out of that, left or right, if you move out of that to start going as they did here, and, and my understanding came from the Greens, from Eugenie Sage, <laughs> it's an attempt to prevent or, or, uh, any move to privatise any water um, body in New Zealand. Now, again, this has nothing to do with the substance of whether you support privatisation or public ownership of, of water. It's to do with the fact that you would pull strength, you would tie the hands behind at the back of, of any government to be able to run on a platform to, to privatise something or do whatever they want, but they can't unless they get 65% of the vote, which is an entrenched... Uh, and you're only... Yeah, I think it was, was 60. 60. I think it was 60%. And you're only meant to entrench things that we had bipartisan agreement on. Correct. Basically, what you do typically is you reserve some entrenchment for really constitutional provisions. So uh, freedom of religion, freedom of association, freedom of speech. Freedom of rights. And to get to that in the voting age. Sure. Yeah. Um, but, but the things that should be really beyond the normal game of politics, uh, and you protect them, and actually many countries do. So you need, in, in Australia, for example, you want to change the constitution, you need to take it to a referendum. Yes, so you can take For example. Or when you want to change, say, the German constitution, it requires a two-thirds majority in both chambers of parliament. So there are some things that are really so important that they are protected, and rightly so. But when it comes to the question should we be able to privatize some waterworks in the future? Well, that is not on the same level. That's a policy question. And these matters should never be entrenched in that way. It's actually showing content for the democratic process because these are the things that we elect politicians for. It, 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 it's actually by entrenching and what you're doing is you're, you're saying that we'll let the courts make the decision on something in the future, potentially, which is something we can come to with Supreme Court's decision. And it makes it harder. It makes it harder for a future government to change the law. It's, it doesn't make it impossible, by the way, because some future governments would still, at least by convention, be able to change even that law with a simple majority. So whether this will actually be watertight and forward is a completely different matter. But it shows a certain mindset. And the mindset is we are really the buff constitutional conventions and we just do what we want. And not being even prepared to debate something like this. Because I, I th as I understand it, it was a response that all their justification for it has been that in, in under John Key's national government, the, that there was a referendum, do you want to sell, to sell the assets? Uh, and the referendum was for, uh, 44%. You know, so there was no mandate to sell the assets. And then, but then... To be fair, National did actually campaign on. I mean, I ran a stop the asset sales campaign, but they did campaign in the election to that they would, if, if they got into government, that they would look at selling um, assets, and they did. So they did actually have it. They did have an electoral mandate. So that their justification, I think, now is that they they think if you'd had a referendum where there was not a majority to sell the assets, and then a government comes in and reneges on that, therefore you need these protections. But if you argue that, well, then you need protections on a whole bunch of things that, are, that we choose not to entrench, again, because we want this balance of flexibility in our constitution with only a small number of things that are there for stability. Yes. And actually what it does is it really destroys the constitutional spirit on which so much actually rests. Because if that is the precedent now that we're making the next government's life really hard, well, what do you think the next government's going to do to its success? So do we really want to see this all unravel where every government tries to torpedo the next government? Or should we actually go back to the basic rules of the democratic game and just accept that every now and then 
government's changed, and then they have a mandate to do whatever they like about their campaign bond. And there are other ways, if you want to try and make it really hard for a, a, a next government to, to reverse the policy, there are other ways of doing that, even if they are tricky, and I necessarily support these. But uh, I know that, uh, again, with the Joel Key government, uh, the Sky City Convention Centre, they had a clause in there that if you if a government was going to pull out of that policy, that, that project, then they'd have to pay. And and actually, the left did the same way for private prisons. With, when when, when um, a national privatised prisons, you had to obviously pay a contract to the private uh, firms that were running those prisons if you wanted to reverse the privatisation of prisons, which the Labour government, the Hammond-Clark Labour government did, and had to pay out. That's perfectly legitimate. That is legitimate because it's a different kind of contractual arrangement. So you're effectively having the state enter into a contract with a private party. And then, of course, like every other contract, if you want to pull out, well, then you have to pay a penalty. That's just normal, the normal way of dealing with Otherwise, it would struggle to find anyone, any business doing um, business with the government. If there's always a chance that the government will um, just declare this null and void and say, well, thank you very much for doing all the work, but actually we've changed on. So was very careful about how it is any new government can reverse policies that may well have had commercial contractual uh, arrangements with with companies, and that's perfectly legitimate. So there's a, a bigger question here politically, Oliver, because you know, you're from the right, I'm from the centre left. You're from the centre right. I'm from the. We're from the centre. I'm from the liberal centre. You're from the liberal centre, <laughs> defining where we sit politically. But the point is, we both agree, and I agree from someone on the left who finds it really hard to debate and have for years to debate this government's policies and initiatives without being shut down, told that I'm, uh, I, am, I, can't, I can't tell you how many times I've been told I'm a Tory, I'm a right-wing sellout, etc. So... Just because you're a bit more reasonable? The, well, well, the point is, why, why is this government so afraid of debate and dissent? Because looking at these issues as constitutional issues, uh, and we can talk about, I mean, so we can say the same about we, a debate about the hate speech, the debate over the voting age that's just emerged last week, it is almost impossible to have a debate without being accused of spreading misinformation or misleading or being divisive. Uh, what, why is that? Well, there's a short answer and there's a long answer. Give us the short answer. Well, the short answer is um, the classic quote by Lord Acton, the poor corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So this government has absolute power. They've got 60% in government, including the Greens. They think they will never have this kind of majority again. Oh, which incidentally, uh, with a clarifying this, it's with the reason this entrenched um, clause over three waters and the ability to not, basically not privatise, is it, the reason it's 60%, not 75%, which is what you have, because that's the majority now. And and I think under the law, you have to have whatever majority you voted it in with, you want to entrench it, has to be the same that seems to be like that's true. Any lectures. Yes. <clears throat> Carry on. So that's a short answer. <clears throat> Maybe it can tell about. <clears throat> so, um. You're human. Oh. You cough. I pretend. You sneeze. I pretend. <laughs> well, um, the law governs. Well, first of all, I was really encouraged by the response this saw on Twitter over the weekend. Because there were people on Twitter who would otherwise probably never agree with me who suddenly liked white tweets and vice versa. So there is a constitutional, very left-winged lawyer, Ben Hedgula, and um, I liked what he said, and he liked what I said, and we were both outraged. 
Very good. Outraged that you agreed. No, we were not outraged to agree. I was actually quite happy to, to agree because that's what I would like to see. That it doesn't really matter what the policy position the key is, um, that, that there's entrenchment concerns. But the, the fact that we're entrenching is just wrong. And you could actually see on Twitter that um, there are quite a few people who have principles and they disagreed with their own parties. And that shows that they have principles. And then there were a few other people who defended it until the cost came on. And that just revealed them as the political hacks of battle. And, and tribal. And, and we've seen some ugly tribal politics, I think, over this tragic murder uh, of the dairy worker in Sandry, where suddenly Sonny Cashel, his job it is to represent dairy farmers, is being um, targeted on Twitter because he's a former Labour Party uh, candidate. Was he successful? Mother was I, instantly. Um, and, uh, uh, and then went to national... And this, you've No, I haven't, and probably won't, Oliver. But um, the the point is, it's like his political um, affiliations and his background. That when there's been these tweets out, and this is from some on, I have to say, some of my old colleagues on the left, attacking him because he's holding the government to account. When I, but before we get to talking about crime, because that's the other big issue is what should governments do, what should national, what should national, what should Labour be proposing to do that would make a difference. I think it's still interesting to talk a bit more about um, this culture in this government of, of avoiding dissent. And, and it's not just avoiding dissent, avoiding... Avoiding debates. That's actually one of it, yeah. The current setup in Parliament. We have Parliament sitting under urgency. That means they are sitting until midnight on all to do this. Uh, this provision we were talking about, the entrenchment happened, I think, on Tuesday night at about, what, 9 or 10 p.m. Mm. So, I mean, initially I was a bit surprised. I thought, where's the opposition and all this? This happened on Tuesday before not on Saturday. Why didn't they make a noise on Tuesday night? What's all Well, the answer to that is probably that they didn't even know what was happening because they are just overburdened. There is so much stuff happening in Parliament. So, of course, ACT and National voted against this, and some people within there knew what was happening. But I guarantee you the leadership have no idea because they're just bombarded with all of these different um, legislative projects. And I think that's part of the problem. We have 24 bills on the urgency, really meaty stuff. So we've got the replacement of the Resource Management Act. That is an act running over 800 pages. Um, we just found out today, by the way, the, su the submission period ends when? Oh, it's it's in weeks. It's the 30th of January. So we're getting a once-in-a-generation change running over 800 pages. This is really technically complex stuff. And then the government says you've got time, but only over Christmas and New Year and practically everybody's on holiday. And by the 30th of January, we want to have your submissions. This is nuts. So again, an, an, another example of just avoiding difficult debate and discussion, which they did over the farmyard, farm levy, Farmgate Levy as well, where I think the, the consultation period was six weeks or something like that. But I, I think some make the mistake of thinking that it's because the government is ideological with a capital I, you know, that their that their ideologues pushing through uh, their their mefty views of whether it's anti privatization, no central control, no stake with all I actually don't think that's the issue. I think the issue is that there's there's a righteousness there that that means, and if you're righteous, you believe that you are right, mm -hmm. and therefore the whole concept of debate that you might put up with, but you don't actually think your opposition um, in the debate has a, has a point. And if you don't think your opposition has a point, 
then you're only left with going, you're wrong. And then you're not just wrong, you're failed. Well, it's only a little bit more unlift. Yeah. So, so, so that is the, the same dynamic that we see in populism on the right. We see it in, with Trump and the right in America. We see it with populism in Europe where you know, your, your opposition need to be demonized. They need to not just be wrong, they need to be evil and bad. Now, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that Labour sees its opposition as, as evil and bad. But I, I just there's a quote here which I found again another judge stunning isn't it that we where on the one hand we've got judicial overreach in the Supreme Court which we'll discuss but then we've got you know judges over the weekend as you say coming out from left and right uh, really articulating so um, coherently what the problem is so here's uh, this is District Court Judge David Harvey who has said and this was in response to the hate speech legislation which has been massively watered down but puts religion back into, uh, once put religion into the Human Rights Act, as well as ethnicity, race, gender, and so on. Uh, he says, Miss Ardern is possessed of a high sense of the righteousness of her cause. She does not debate ideas. She rejects them or refutes the premise of the opposition without engaging in debate. She therefore avoids confronting the uncomfortable re the reality that she may be wrong. And I think this is the thing. In a democracy, you're, you have... You should accept, you must accept that your opposition might sometimes be right. That is actually the essence of democracy, that, is, that we accept that. And where we're moving to, I think, is this idea that um, your opposition are wrong on everything because, you know, it's a sort of tribal approach to politics. So I think it's righteousness, not ideology, that is making it so hard for this government to to enter into debate on these issues. Righteousness is a good keyword here. Um, because it leads us straight to Jonathan Pite. So Jonathan Pite, the American psychologist, mm. wrote a book about almost 10 years ago now, The Righteous Mind. And in that, he explains why we good and decent, ordinary people cannot agree on politics and the Because we have this built-in tendency to think that we are fine and the other side is not. And then we have built-in inner lawyers and um, they try to find all sorts of justifications for all positions that we emotionally like. Mm. So we are at some stage no longer really accessible to rational arguments. And it's good to know that that's how the human mind works, because then you can try to work against it. Because, of course, we, we realize rationally this is not the way to have a good debate. It's the concrete to have a good argument. So Jonathan Hyde actually wrote this whole book about it, and I recommend it wholeheartedly. It's one of the best books I've read in the last decade. So my What's it called? The Righteous Mind. The Righteous Why Good People Are Divided on Religion and Politics. Ooh. Brilliant book. Absolutely brilliant book. And what we see here in practice is, of course, exactly what Hyde writes about. And the other thing that I would say about um, Jacinda Ardern's mode um, of doing politics, I'm not sure whether you read my piece in the newsletter that we had on Friday. I think there is a distinction that you can make between the ethics of good intentions and the ethics of responsibility. And it's not me coming up with this division or distinction. It's Max Weber, the famous sociologist, founder of sociology. And I think in the Prime Minister, we see a lot of the ethics of good intentions. So she is very righteous. She is very moralistic in her arguments. However, when it comes to the ethics of responsibility, that's measured in all cars. But we haven't really seen much of that. It really came home to me last week when I watched a news story that a 1.9 billion investment in mental health beds didn't yield a single extra bed. And, and there you really have the 
Bavarian distinction exemplified. So you have a prime minister that went on at the time of the 2019 first well-being budget saying what a great initiative this was and how it would help, especially mental health patients. And and then three years later, we found out that nothing happened. So all good intentions and new outcomes. Yeah. And, and it's a funny combination of exactly that, of a sort of righteousness and a moral certainty combined with a lack of moral courage, I would say. Now, you and I would disagree on, on some of the things that we think they should have done as a government. And well, I think they should have done far more um, in terms of addressing what I think is is a unbalanced tax system. I mean, I support a tax on uh, wealth as, as much as a tax on income, or rather I support a tax on all forms of income, whether making it free, um, the proceeds of wealth, profits from wealth, whether that be houses or, or so on. Now, you and I would disagree on that, but the point is, it's been a, a government that was slow to support Ukraine in the war. It was slow to call out um, uh, the attacks on women in Iran. And we understand a little bit. It's a bit slow on China, too. And, and uh, well, and arguably on China, too. And it, it, it's very careful. So it's this funny combination of righteousness, but then um, moral timidity yeah. when it comes to actually doing stuff that makes a difference. And I think it's those two things that people have just gone, um, we've had enough with this. Um, by the way, you're right, we would agree on the tax question. But I would actually take it a step maybe forward or backward, depending on what we look at it. I think talking about tax is probably the one question. What, what you and I probably want outcomes about is this the same. Mm. So we probably agree we want affordable housing for everybody in the country. We want a decent education system delivering really high-quality education to children from all backgrounds. So when it comes to all of these outcomes, I think there is practically nothing between us. What we are really debating is how do we get there? Loss. Yes. So a clean environment, functioning justice of some good transport opportunities. The Oliver is the, is the definition of democracy. Yeah. And that's what I mean about how we agree on the outcomes compromise between us is not a flaw in the system. It's the point of the system. You sometimes have a, you sometimes know, know better than me about something and you come up with some evidence that convinces me. Sometimes it's maybe vice versa. I wouldn't for all the I was certainly possibly. Yeah, you, you may be, right. I'll work on that one. No, no, no. Um, what I'm saying is actually that people on the left and the right are typically agreed on quite a lot of these. Um, at least it used to be that way with the old left. I'm not so sure, but the new left sometimes. But um, the question is really... So I don't think more left. That's a good point. Um, because actually, um, I used to think of myself maybe in T5 for the two years ago as someone more on the left. And I don't think I've really changed my values. I want to see the same. So um, we are only talking about how to get them. And if we can't have that debate anymore without being called names without calling your motives into question, then we have a problem. So I think there's a, it's an issue that you talk about outcomes as the lens to look at so much stuff, um, and it seems so obvious. But I, I was really struck with Ned Fletcher's book of the treaty recently, where he basically showed evidence that the Māori version treaty and the English treat, version of the treaty at the time were actually um, the same, that we, we actually understood each other then in a way that we don't now, right? So it's quite an extraordinary finding, his book on the treaty. And and what he what he talks about is that the outcomes that, 
that both parties wanted uh, were similar, and it was about protecting Māori uh, interests and rights to, to have control over their own outcome. Now, that to me is different to what we're talking about, the co-governance of free waters, so we should talk about that because when this entrenchment clause is all about free waters. Um, what Ned Fletcher's book shows is that there's, there is, there, at the time of the signing of the treaty, there was a real understanding that absolutely Māori should have control, resources, and um, uh, sovereignty over their own, uh, or Ranatiritana, over their own uh, outcomes in health, in housing, uh, in education, and so on. That's quite different to co-governments. So a better way of thinking about free waters might have been um, about devolution. So if you're devolving to Māori, if you're devolving to local to local communities, then you wouldn't have the model of free waters being kept now, which is this massive centralisation, and then this kind of co-governance model imposed on top of that as well. Yeah, I, I frankly struggle to see why we need for what co-governance in the context of water management anyway. I mean, the water needs of most of the population are quite similar. Um, we all need water, and it doesn't matter about the, the color of your skin. So, in that sense, it should should be a colorblind connoisseur. And to me, you can have co-governance on you know, the Waikato River, Pan, the Uruweras. Yeah, there, there, are, there are certainly models of co-governance over specific areas, over specific um, um, land, over specific assets, which is very different, as you say, to a co-governance model over something that we all use, I water. And it seems to... We're not even talking about water. We're not talking about the issue all. We're talking about pipes. Basically, we're talking about But I think the reason the government stuck themselves into such a pickle about this is that they tried to fix the really difficult issue over who owns water and is there such a thing as ownership of measure. And what you're really talking about is who has akin to a property right to use it, whether you're official person or it's here or all your iwi crews and that. So now, if that would help them, there's actually not so much in the water itself. The problem is really in infrastructure that carry. Yes, but they've tried to, I think that was like to, and intellectually, they've tried to combine those two things. And guess what? I've got the size of a mess. That doesn't work. I mean, there's no question if we have challenges in water infrastructure. And then it will require a massive amount of investment in the next three decades. The question is going to be how to be more than ISIS investment, where to be that the funds and how to restructure everything. In my view, actually, centralizing it with these four water entities is not going to be the solution because that actually in itself doesn't provide you the capital. Typically, um, what we do is with any kind of infrastructure spending, ideally, you would make sure that extra investment pays for itself, typically for user fees over time. And then you can borrow against your future income from these user fees. And Deliverly. That's how other countries do it. That's how it usually works. Well, there's been two creek of models, alternative models put forward, which accept that we need to do something as a country for our um, wretched state of our pipes underground. Um, you know, one was from the Auckland Christchurch mayors, um, which so basically that it, it had, um, I think, um, access to government investment. So yes, that makes sense for centralised uh, um, funds to be available. Um, and a consolidation, any consolidation or co-governance will be driven by local councils or regions. So you'd be able to introduce a co-governance model if that's what Wokiwiri and Uriwi wanted. Um, and then you'd have this regional water organisation over the top of it, which kind of, I guess, sets the regulation, regulates the quality 
of for water delivery. Um, you know, there's been other options. Castalia, uh, uh, yeah. long ago, I, I remember speaking to them where they were going, three waters is not going to work. We are not Scotland. Because our three, our three waters model was based on Scotland, which is a much smaller geographical area. Um, but, you know, they they suggested a model where central government sets up the regulatory benchmarks on water quality, councils set up with plans, um, the regional amalgamations that they want, and you have something like an infrastructure commissioner who can kind of oversee it and make sure that it's like it's accountable to, to voters and local authorities. I don't see why, again, we come back to why the government would not debate this or even consider this uh, in a way that would actually solve the problem for them. Because... I thought I've said this before, Oliver. Good luck finding three people in the country who understand three catches. It's the fact that three waters has come to symbolise this uh, an arrogant government that doesn't want to listen, that doesn't want to debate, and that you feel like there's a secret agenda going on here with co-governance, even if there isn't. I mean, I think, as I said, I think what the government's done is they they've muddled themselves by trying to solve the the treaty issue around ownership of water with actually what is an infrastructure problem. Exactly. So. And actually what I really would like to see is a solution to this problem, which basically takes a both out of debate altogether because it's simply a non-issue. And what I have in mind is something like um, where I grew up in Germany. You know, in Vienna, I didn't know. Given you. No, no. I, <laughs> no, the funny thing is that I lived in Germany for 28 years. I'm still following German politics. I have never in all of this time, heard the word water in political debates. Never. It is a non-issue in Germany. It is taken care of by councils with local water works, and they finance the infrastructure, they they get it paid, they get it done. It is simply a non-issue. It just is nothing that would ever bother anyone in Germany because it just happens when it's needed. And I think what we would ideally want to see in our water setup is a system that just works by itself, but nobody really has to pay too much attention because the stuff almost happens automatically. And if you've got the right regulatory setup, yeah. you can make that happen. And I think the reason that it has the current issue here is because it's a treason issue and it's, and it's got to wind up with that. And, and actually not having the courage to have the debate openly has meant that we're all and everyone's scared like they haven't had a say and that they don't know how to engage in this debate. So now we're all really angry yeah. and, and for different reasons and different ways. And by the way, just so listeners don't think that um, everything in Germany is great. Um, and short clues have been more like no, German. No, they're short, they're short. And there's a reason why. But um, no, look at Germany again and see what they have done in energy. Energy, again, should be one of these areas where, no, the electricity just moves and it's generated as it's needed. Well, they've completely messed up on that. So, um, mm. that is a system that's totally politicized. If you hear a lot about this in the German news, but water, or, or by contrast, we don't get anything out. In New Zealand, that's a bit the other way around. I mean, energy is still kind of okay, except we're trying our best to cook book up There's another podcast in there. Yes, but, um, but water is, of course, all over the news at the moment. So I think ideally, with all of these things that people take for granted, you know that when you put the bathroom and there's water in the tap, right? Or when you switch on the light and it should come on. Right? Or when you want to heat your house, there's heat for that. These are the kinds of systems that should always work automatically. We should have regulatory setups and systems that deliver this without any great politics. Mm. And unfortunately, when it comes to water, this government is doing it exactly the other way around. See, I, 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 don't, mind, I don't mind the politicking of it 
in, as in principle, because I think we should debate how we structure our energy system. I'm the climate change and zero carbon measures with the Zero Carbon Policy Act, that that has meant that um, actually energy has become high increment. Yeah, but again, this is a kind of a system that you could actually set up in a way that it takes care of itself. Yes, yes. So we've got the emissions trading scheme. We talked about this last time already. Once you've got that in place, then leave the system alone, walk away, and let the system take care of itself. Instead, what we're doing, we're introducing more regulations and a EU emissions custom and here and some subsidies there and a regulation over there. And we will not have, never stop interfering with the system. Ideally, in all of these big systems, you define the rules, you define the property rights, and then you leave the world. Well, uh, yeah, that's a whole other podcast too. Let's let's talk about that. As we Before we go, I think we should have a quick chat about the OCR. So is Adrian or now in your best friend? I'm absolute hero. I mean, look at Adrian. You guys are so cynical. No, he is now leading the world and in increasing interest rates because he messed it all up so much before. And now he's getting flexible. I find this a bit um, unusual. It's cabotulated having, having been so angry with him. No, I mean, seriously. Um, it is... Um, well, it, it just shows that we are a little bit forgetful in public debates. Going basically, this guy is just fixing his own mess. So, and he's getting praised for that. But he's I, getting praised for the fixing of the mess. So I, so I don't think he, I, I don't blame him in the same way that you do for the mess. Because I think there's, I, I, you know, I would challenge anyone who criticised him to say, would you not have done that? Would you not have done the stimulus in the first place during COVID? I know what you would say is you would have tightened sooner. Yes, and I accept that, but. Um, but what's really, just thinking with him, this move that he's made to basically increase interest rates to the, the highest hike ever since 1999, uh, 0.75, so now we're at 4.25 of that interest rates, um, extraordinary decoupling from the government. So he... Oh, and did you see the country in Adrian Gore in the Sunday Star Times? Yes. Exactly. Him is the, yeah. I mean, he should have a leaner Christmas and cut back on your spending. Yeah. And I thought, well, maybe you should start because um, have you seen how much the staff numbers at the RBNZ have mushroomed over the last three years? But would you, yeah, and I'm sure you do accept that politically he has he has positioned himself now to be uh, further distant from the government. He is no longer, a, 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 his, you, you cannot accuse him, you guys on the right can't accuse him of uh, being in the pocket of Grant Robertson, um, he's basically told the government off. Yeah, yeah sure. Um, he's told them to spend less. Yes, um, and, and by the sword, but also only showing uh, a degree of panic, actually, on this part. Because he sees that, actually, despite the previous MCI freezes, he hasn't managed to bring um, rain and inflation. So, so why is it, this is a headline from the Financial Times, Central Bank takes, this New Zealand Central Bank takes ultra-hawkish Stance country is canary in the coal mine. Well, that's precisely what I've argued for the last couple of years that when it comes to tightening, he would have to present himself as the ultra ball simply because he has no credibility in the market. If he had built up a little bit of credibility for no price stability and, and decent management, he wouldn't have to be ultra original. Right, but now New Zealand is being ultra hawkish compared to other countries, you know, like Fed. Has not. I think theirs was a 0.25 raise. I'm not sure. It might have been more. Uh, Canada was 
0.50. I mean, every, no one's gone as high as New Zealand. So now New Zealand is seen as this um, incredibly hawkish monetary policy uh, country where we're basically munging the country into recession next year. That's yeah. a very big cost to pay. It is a very big cost to pay, but one to me explains the other. I mean, if you are a boy racer and growing at 200 kilometers per hour, and you then see from the distance that there's police car, of course you break even harder. And that's exactly what he's doing. So he went at a massive speed in the stimulus direction. And then when he realized, oops, there's something with an obstacle coming my way, he went right on the brake and he's not doing it faster than anybody else. But our but our inflation rates are still lower than the UK the best. Yeah, but our inflation rate is entirely self inflicted. Yes, but I mean why would he have to go so hard now? Like he's got when you said boy racer, everything's out of control. We're actually we're not going as fast in our boy racer tracks and but we are out of control because we can already see what he has done with the current inflation rate of just about seventy and three percent. Once we take the fuel of Revac into it. Aha. Anyway. Do you think the government law of us will extend that? No, but I mean, um, you can see the outcome. The outcome is actually that we now have wage settlements that are going towards the unlikely So these inflation expectations are becoming entrenched. And then it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy. It becomes even harder for the reserve bank to work against it. So you could, instead of throwing the country into recession at such low interest rates, you could say, Let's open borders, bring in, bring in workers, fill the places, uh, the, the, the empty gaps in the market. I'm not sure that would help. That, that would help. In a way, I feel a bit sorry for Adrian or if the government... Oh God, I never thought I'd heard you say that. Well, don't, just don't tell him. Um, no, if the government opened the borders, if we made it a bit easier for migrants to find to come here, and if we got rid of all the bureaucratic nightmares that immigration is here, that would make the job of the reserve thing a bit easier. No doubt about that. And, and that's always been my amateur view of this, Oliver, is that you've got to have monetary policy, fiscal policy, working in the same direction because otherwise, and that's my issue with having a single um, mandate of inflation, is that you could have a government that's targeting an increase in employment and, and, and a reserve bank that has to, has to act against a government because it's going, well, our only issue is inflation, so we're going we're gonna to make it really hard for them to mm. out jobs. I mean, so, but the point here, Jimmy, just briefly add one thing. Yes, I mean, because we're in this pre-Christmas period, I've got nothing personally against Adrian Moore. Um, unfortunately, he is the governor of the Reserve Bank, and for a long time, that meant he was solely responsible, not anymore, of course, but for policy, you know, but he's still the leading figure at the RBNZ and so unfortunately when you criticize RBNZ policies it automatically becomes pressed. I don't actually mean it personally. I mean mm-hmm. I had my interactions with Adrian in the past and they were not always pleasant but actually I've got nothing against the guy personally. I just don't think he's done a particularly good job. And again this is back to the previous discussion we should actually keep these things separate. We can criticize someone for what they're doing, criticize some of the ideas. It doesn't mean that you hate them. I don't hate Adrian. I just don't think he has done a good enough job. But you support you support this hawkish stance now, and I know you're saying because of necessity. But of course, that's what you have to do now, and I think there is an alternative. Unfortunately, it's going to be painful. It's I would say self-inflicted pain. It was necessary. We didn't have to end up where we are, but now that we are where we are, well, what can you do? You have to bring it back under control because the longer you let it fester, the harder it will be in the future. So, two predictions as we come to the end of this chat. I think that the entrenchment clause in the legislation for three waters 
uh, my will be reversed within days, yeah. but we might chap it out. And I think... Because it's become a good... It's become to... Yeah. Not because they've suddenly discovered the democratic idea. Again, which is why I don't think they're ideologues. I think they're righteous. I mean, they're so timid. Um, and the second uh, prediction, I think, is that... Um, uh, uh, I can't remember what my second prediction was now. Um, it was all war. You probably wanted to say something about next year's election. Well, no, we could predict that. No, but I think yeah, the entrenchment clause. Oh, I know what it was. It was the fuel, the fuel ex- the rebate. I think that will be extended. So it's it's due to go out on January third first. Due to like so that basically, as you say, will increase inflation by I think 05 percent. So if inflation is at where we think it will be in late January, about what seven point three, we're thinking. Yeah, we can find monthly. You can have a look on uh, GDPLife.net and you get the current inflation figures before it sets in that tells you. Um, it's still running above seven percent. Yeah, about seven percent. So, so in other words, if you um, it, overnight inflation will go up 0.5 percent more. In other words, it'll cost you about ten or fifteen dollars more to fill up more petrol. So you can go on holiday to the batch or the beach uh, with one cost, and when you come back, it'll cost you about ten or fifteen dollars more. Well, frankly, it's all fuel is going to be the government's least worry next year. And when people realise, I'll say, when people realise how much more they have to pay for their mortgages. For their mortgages, that's right. So then on top of that, you put, I mean, things become symbolic very quickly. You might have the average household after remortgaging worth of maybe ten or fifty thousand dollars a year. That's a enormous amount. So I think the government will want a quick political win and they will extend their fuel rebate, even though it's extremely expensive, but I think they'll do that. I think they're really snooking themselves with that one, because how on earth do you pull it back once you do the stuff? That's bad policy anyway, because um, with these fuel taxes, we typically pay for the votes. And driving around New Zealand suggests that we might need some investment. The one very quick comment, because I think we should, before we close, let's close on this message of... Oh, no, it's not. wasn't positive at all. It's weekly depressing. But it's, it, it's looking for murder of the, of the dairy work. Well, that's really depressing and shocking. And my daughter lives just around the road from there. And they, she's been, they've been robbed. They've had their cars broken into. Um, they've had guys off their head on drugs trying to get in. And they're a fat full of girls. Um, I worry about my stupid son who's out nightclubbing in, in Auckland because he's at uni. It's just, it feels like, and the statistics show an increase in violent crime, an increase in robbery, um, the most blatant robbery, yes. stealing, you know, going to dairies and stealing the till is not a big crime. Um, it's treated as a trivial crime, I feel, at the moment, from a, a personal experience, but also looking at anecdotally what people are saying, is that police just aren't coming out to stuff like that. And then those seemingly trivial, daylight robbery, exactly, incidents, Fast becoming um, a murder, and that's what we're seeing. So, it's uh, there's no. It's very hard. Crime is woman hard to know what you do in the short term. So you protect yourself, but as you do in the long term, that Tony Blair thing, tough on crime, tough on the cause of crime. You've got to do both. What is one thing that you think the government should do to reassure the public they get that we're worried about crime? In the first instance, I think they need to get their rhetoric right. I watched the Prime Minister on, I think it was Saturday or Sunday, speaking at the Auckland Police headquarters, and it sounded like a very first kind of political statement. You still didn't get the impression that they actually got it, and that they really cared too much. It was too much a normal political statement. What I would actually like to hear from the government is something a bit more like Tony Blair in that sense. 
that they really mean it. They want to be tough on the course of time and tough on crime because the signal they sent over all, all the last two years was, well, um, the soft, we actually got quite relief from prisons anyway and some little like support the police. And actually, we were happy to uh, delegate the police to call it policing and, and leave all the other stuff because it's not that important. So you got the impression actually that they didn't care. Mm. To change course, I think, on 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 security, you need to have a different regime. We need to get the right people in place. Um, personally, I like precipitants. Um, I think he's one of the better ministers we have, and I think he really means well. But is it the right signal to send the education necessarily to the police portfolio as well, when this should be a full-time job? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't they have sent a completely different signal if they had really dedicated one person to just police and making sure it would be tough on crime? Maybe take someone like Greg O'Connor, who has a record, of course, from police association time, and stands for some. And who has been gathered completely unutilized status. Well, he's deputy speaker, Mo. Um, if you really want to send a signal that you're really, really serious, you take someone and make it a full-time job and say, your job is not representative. And I think it's going to hurt them in the in next year's election, just as it um, could have undermined the Democrats if they have had, in the midterms, if they haven't had Roe v. Wade as a, um, a kind of issue that rallied their base so successfully, but they they were hurt very badly before the midterms on the whole defund the police um, yes. initiative that came from the so-called progressive side of the Democrats, of the left uh, side of the Democrats. And, and, you know, this is the Democrats, like the left, the left that I grew up with was the party of, you know, police, uh, um, nurses, uh, fire workers. Yeah, it, was the, it was the party of... Um, working people who work on the front line, who who yeah, on actually I my father lived in Atlanta for forty odd years, and I spent a lot of time. And he used to go around to a pub, which was a classic Democrats pub, and um, it was famous. Every Democratic president since JFK, whenever they came to Atlanta, would go to this pub. It was just a tradition. Obama was there. Bill Clinton would be there. I was there when Bill Clinton came in. Actually, this pub. It's got like huge uh, photos all over the walls going back generations of police, firefighters. It's their pub. And every Democratic leader has to pay homage to that pub and homage to those uh, police and firefighters uh, and health workers working in Atlanta. And they've done it for generations. To see the Democrats decouple themselves from that base, I think there's a danger in New Zealand of seeing um, Cromwell become a problem for Labour in the next election. Because you're right, in order to get the trust to do the rehabilitation stuff, to do the prison work, to, to reduce sentences or whatever whatever it is that for, for minor crimes, in order to get the social licence to do that, you have to do the tough on crime bit too and, the, and have to be believed. And you have to have the right interior minister for it. Yeah. Um, by the way, that's the same story in Germany. So as I mentioned before in the last podcast, my dad was a police officer. Yes, of course. So I come from this That was revelation, was it? Yes. What worry? Well, I d- didn't know your dad was a police officer. And <clears throat> when you come from a police family, you actually come from the broader police family. Yes. So um, the, the police was 
as we say in America, quite closely affiliated with the Social Democrats mm. through their trade union, the Gewerkschaft der Polizei, so the trade union of the police. And um, that bond has broken. So in Germany. in Germany too. So the police has probably shifted towards the right parties because they felt left alone, abandoned by social democrats, even though they had a traditionally very strong relationship with them through their union. It really takes someone to stand up for the police and say, okay, I'm your minister now and I'm going to do what I can to also keep you safe and let you do your job. I quite like the police to stand up for themselves, though. I've interviewed a few of our representatives with police service uh, um, over in, on radio over the last few months. And you ask them, you give them all the opportunity to say, you do not have enough resources to respond to the petty, the open, the daylight robbery, um, the, the guys licking my son's bike in front of my son and his friends, literally, and they're filming it and they sent to the police and first can't do anything. I'm waiting for them to say, we need this, we need that, we cannot respond effectively. And don't know why they're not saying that. They seem to be saying, yuck, so fine. Uh, it's just a very bad time post-COVID. No. And especially when this really goes to the heart of New Zealand's cultural self-understanding. I don't know whether you saw this on Twitter the other day. There was a picture of an often dairy. And basically, the interior of the dairy was a giant cage. Ooh. And um, that was probably deemed necessary after lots of robberies. But it doesn't look like New Zealand anymore. And I read this actually on um, many TV stories on, on this prime way, where migrants from India or from South Africa are telling us actually we moved to New Zealand because we want to move to a country that is safe, safe for them the places we come from. And then 10, 20 years later, we find ourselves in exactly the situations we try to escape from. Yeah. So we're losing our reputation as being a safe place. It's not the New Zealand that people here grew up with, and it's not the place that migrants chose to come to. Or the dairy owner in, in Christchurch, who's uh, owned and run his dairy for, I think, 28 years, is going back to India. Does it? Does he even care if he can't sell his dairy, just wants to get out of New Zealand? That's true. That is shocking. And that just makes me feel like a thump in the gut section. And yes. that's not like New Zealand's meat. No, and that's certainly not the country even I moved from just 10 years ago. That was not like that. We lost something in the last few years. So are you going to be spending most to help the economy for Crispy Silver? Oh, uh, well, I'm... Maybe Christmas presents for family? Oh, we'll have some Christmas presents, not with the orange difference as presents. <laughs> but no, I'm going to be focused for the economy. Um, I'm going to be responsible. I'm not going to increase Adrian Orr's funds too much. And that's why I decided to spend part of our family in Australia. Oh, so you're going to spend some money in Australia? Correct, so I'm going to increase their inflation rate levels. Well done, okay. That's probably a very good place to end it. Oliver, it's an iterative fascist war. You do, you always want the last word. I always want the last word, and the last word, as always, is goodbye. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, yes. <laughs> yes, Merry Christmas. Oliver, Merry Christmas. We'll meet again next year. We will. We'll meet again. Fresh. That break into song, but I won't. No, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.